I'm Dr. Neil Brynard here at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and I'm with SoFlow Vegans. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. And of course, I'm joined by our co-host and media coordinator, the veg nurse, Alba Mendez. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Neil Barnard, who returns to the podcast to talk about his book, as well as topics covering your health, your vitality, wellness, and everything in between. We're so excited to have him back on the show and to pick his brain and go a little bit deeper than we did in our previous episode, which you can find at soflowvegans.com slash podcast. We have some exciting announcements. If you listen to our last episode, you know about our virtual expo. We'll be letting you know a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. So make sure you stay tuned. So with that being said, enjoy the show. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. And today... We have another returning champion. This season is full of returning champions. And before we introduce him officially, I want to introduce our co-host for the episode. We have our media coordinator, Alba Mendez. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. And as always, Alba, you have the honor of introducing our guests to all of our wonderful listeners. I don't even think it's an honor anymore. I think it's a tradition. But yes, this is a tradition that I always introduce our guests. And like always, we have a returning champion, Dr. Neil Barner for Physicians Committee. Yay! Thank you so much. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Hey, Sean. Hey, Alba. It's nice to, nice to be back. So mm-hmm. you're definitely a, uh, a huge presence here in the South Florida area, and we appreciate everything that you're doing. But you, well, also, you. But you also have a book coming out. I do. It's called Your Body in Balance. And it's a little bit of a different thing. You know, I've written all kinds of books about diabetes and, and losing weight and so forth, but this is a specific topic. And it's all about hormones, yeah. sex, sex hormones, thyroid hormone, insulin, mm-hmm. and all of the mischief that they can cause when they're not in balance. And so it's, it's amazing to think that even something like menstrual cramps or endometriosis or hot flashes could be related to food but they are because your food affects your hormones. So that's what this book is all about. <laughs> I like that. So let's go ahead and get started. For the ones who are not aware or are not medical professionals, because we hear the word hormones, hormones, hormone replacement, your hormones are out of whack, you need more testosterone. What exactly is a hormone? Okay, excellent question, thank you. Um, a hormone is really a message. It goes from one part of your body to another. So for example, um, your thyroid gland makes thyroid hormone that goes in the blood and it goes to your muscles and to the other parts of your body to give them energy. Or in a woman's body, the ovaries make estrogens. The estrogens are hormones that go to the uterus to get it ready for pregnancy. Or in a man's body, the testes make uh, testosterone that goes to his brain and makes him want to run for president. Um, <laughs> anyway, the point I'm making is that horm- the hormones start in one part of the body, they go somewhere else, and they give messages. It's like uh, getting letters in the mail with instructions to do things. But the reason this matters so much is, let's say a woman's got terrible menstrual cramps or, or, or a couple has infertility issues. Um, these are signs that our hormones are not in balance, 
And people never think about food as being the cause of it, but it can be. And so your body imbalance is going to get your hormones back to where they ought to be. <laughs> I just found that very interesting that um, food affects or pretty much anything that we put into our bodies because medications can also affect our hormones. So we're going to get a little bit further into that. But when you are referring to food affecting our hormones in our bodies, where are hormones found? Um, well, for the most part, your body actually makes them. Uh, mm -hmm. But depending on what you eat, your body can make too much or too little. In fact, oh. let, let me just let me describe a, a case. Um, the, in fact, this is the first thing that got me thinking about this. Um, I was sitting here at my desk, and my phone rang. It was a young woman who had such bad menstrual cramps, she barely get out of bed. Now, for many women have it to a degree, uh, but for maybe one in ten, it's like off the scale, can't function. And that was her situation. And she had uh, a business trip the next day. She said, I can't get on a plane. I just feel terrible. What do I do? And so I said, well, I could give you painkillers for a couple days. But I thought, how are we going to stop this from happening next month and the month after that? And so what I realized is that if her body is making too much estrogen, it's causing these changes in her uterus to be too exaggerated each month and causing too much cramping and too much pain, and that we can actually use foods to get estrogen back to where it ought to be. And to make it short and sweet, if a woman has uh, a lot of fiber in her diet, fiber is roughage from beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains, that brings estrogen levels down because it actually helps the body to excrete estrogens. Um, and if you bring down the fat content of your diet, that means obviously getting away from meat, uh, cheese, dairy products in general, um, your estrogen levels will come down back into the healthy range. And I think it's especially important to avoid dairy products because dairy actually has estrogens that came from a cow. So anyway, to this young lady, I suggested, how about completely vegan for the next month and keep fats really low. So this is not a time to get into all kinds of greasy stuff. And it cured her. Uh, her, she, her cramps just went away. And so we then did a randomized trial, a, a research trial with the Georgetown University Department of OBGYN in a large group of women with, with cramps and found that it, it helps. Um, but you have to do both. It's, it's a vegan diet, no animal products, but you also keep the oils really, really low. That seems to be important to this. Um, oh, let me tell you one, I gotta tell you one other thing, if you don't mind. In the course of this research study, we asked all of the women to not use any kind of hormone medications because that would goof up our study. And one of the women in the study said, don't worry about me. I don't take any medications. And, and we, birth control was part of it. You couldn't use uh, the pill because that's a hormone. She said, I'm infertile. Uh, my husband and I wanted to have kids, but years ago we were both evaluated. Why, were, why couldn't I get pregnant? And it wasn't him. He's, he's okay, but it was me. I don't ovulate. I'm the infertile one. So I don't use the pill. I don't use anything. Well, she came into the research study. She started a vegan diet, very uh, healthy vegan diet, lots of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, uh, kept the oils really low. The second month that she was in the study, she came back into the center and she said, Dr. Barnard, I got some bad news and I got some good news. And I said, well, what is it? She said, I'm leaving your study because I am pregnant. <laughs> and, she, and she gave birth to a healthy baby and then another baby and then a third baby. He, here, here's my point. Um, the, the first person I was describing was a woman who's had terrible cramps. The second one was a woman who thought that she was infertile. These were people who thought they had a medical issue. In both cases, they were related to estrogen imbalance. In both cases, food got them back into balance. How many people do you know who have all kinds of medical thought, uh, issues, 
that they thought were just, you know, God's will or something. What it really has to do with your breakfast. Um, so anyhow, that is the, the whole idea of your body in balance. This is not just a vegan book. It's about how to, to dial your hormones back to where you want them to be so that you can feel right. So you mentioned medication. So what role does that play in the balancing of the hormones? Are they overused? Like, Oh, yeah, Sean, um, way overused. Um, you know, if, if the woman that I just described uh, who had terrible pain, uh, if she went to a pharmacist, uh, the, what, the pharmacist is going to say, just have a look at the shelves here. You've got uh, Motrin, you've got Aleve, you've got Midol, take whatever you want to. And if she went to see her OBGYN, it would be painkillers and, and they might put her on the pill um, because it's a hormone balancing medication. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're wildly overused. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a role for medication and a diet isn't perfect. Some people may need some medication, but but let's use the healing power of the body first. Um, in fact, I got to tell you another story, if you don't mind. It's not, it is not just medicines that are overused. It's procedures, surgical procedures. There is a woman who, and all this is described in your body, your body in balance. These are real people who have come to us. There was a woman named Catherine. She was an Air Force aerospace engineer. And she was in Iraq um, back during the war. And, and when you're in a war zone and you're eating the, the food they give you, you don't gain any weight. You know, you're working hard. But when she got back to Louisiana after her tour of duty, she started tucking into all the foods that she missed, especially cheese, um, mac and cheese and all this stuff. In fact, a friend of hers gave her an entire case of macaroni and cheese dinners, 48 boxes. She ate them for 48 days straight. Oh, wow. But yeah, anyway, you know, some people love cheese. Um, so anyhow, um, she started to develop, well, she gained weight, but she also started to develop pain in her abdomen. And she had a lot of diagnostic tests. And the doctor finally did a laparoscopy. That's where you insert a tube underneath the belly button and you, you look in the abdomen. And the doctor said, okay, all right, we know exactly what you have. It's a condition called endometriosis. And this is where cells that are supposed to be inside the uterus, the li lining the uterus, have escaped. And they're now implanting all around the abdomen. They have implant on your intestinal tract, on your ovaries, on the fallopian tubes. They can strangle them and lead to infertility. And this is what she had. So the doctor said, I could give you painkillers. We could try hormonal medications. None of this worked. So finally, the doctor said, you can have a hysterectomy and just remove your uterus. And he said, well, you know, my husband and I are newlyweds and we were thinking we would have a family. And the doctor said, you're probably infertile anyway from the endometriosis. So she thought, okay, um, okay. If I, if I have no choice and I can't li live like this, we'll do the hysterectomy. So the doctor schedules the procedure and it was for six weeks for, from now. But during that six week period, a friend dragged her to a nutritionist and said, see this nutritionist, get, see, try to get on a healthier diet, whatever. So she began the diet that I had described earlier. No animal products, kept the oils very low um, at this nutritionist's suggestion. And she started to feel better, a lot better. But as six weeks went by, she dutifully reported to the hospital for her hysterectomy. And the doctor uh, made an incision and put in a laparoscope. And she was under general anesthesia. She woke up later. And she's in the recovery room. And the doctor is there shaking her shoulder, looking at her. And he said, Catherine, I didn't do it. You still have your uterus. I didn't do the hysterectomy. And she said, what? 
He said, I didn't, I did, your, your endometriosis is, is effectively gone. I, d- I didn't need to do the hysterectomy. You still got it. Um, anyway, so her mother is there and she said, her mother's in the recovery room and she says, she went vegan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the doctor said, no, come on, stop it. The um, endometriosis is not caused by what you eat and a change in your diet isn't going to make this go away. There's, there's only one explanation for this. This has got to be a miracle. Oh. Um, so that, so that's written in her chart. A- anyway, so, so anyhow, so Catherine never had the procedure. She doesn't have endometriosis anymore. She's not infertile. She's got three kids of her own now. Um, so we've talked about cramps and, and infertility and endometriosis and so forth. And endometriosis is driven by estrogens. And if you're, one thing I didn't mention, cheese has estrogens in it. Bovine so, estrogen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It comes out of the cow. Um, and, and cows are kept pregnant on, 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 on dairy farms uh, for much of the time. It, three, uh, three quarters of every year, cows are pregnant. Um, and a pregnant cow makes even more estrogen than a non-pregnant cow. And it gets into the milk and it's more concentrated in the cheese. It's not a lot, but how much estrogen do you want to eat? <laughs> I mean, it's like, and with the amount of cheese that people eat nowadays for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between, you yeah, add, that adds yes. up after a while. You said it, Alba. Um, your average American is consuming roughly 35 pounds of cheese every year, plus ice cream, plus milk, plus yogurt, plus sour cream, plus the butter and things that are cooked into all the cookies and stuff that they're eating. So they're getting estrogens every day. Mm-hmm. None of them has a clue about any of this. No. So the whole reason that I wrote this book, let me, let me brag about this again. The whole idea is so many people have this idea. Um, I've got a medical problem and I would go vegan if I had diabetes. But could you do it for infertility or for cramps or endometriosis or PCOS um, or or a guy with erectile dysfunction? Um, And the answer is, yeah. So anyway, I I know I would. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And what what role, you know, obviously there's a personal responsibility for us to take care of ourselves, to, you know, find the best possible options that do the less harm. But what role do the doctors have in bringing up that conversation of nutrition. Oh my goodness. I, it, they have been able to get, well, first of all, in, pra- in praise of doctors, doctors uh, have a, a vitally important role and medical, medical treatments are very important and diagnosis is very important. But where doctors really have dropped the ball and they've gotten away with it is they, they are not trained in nutrition and they just neglect it. And I'll give you an example. A guy goes to the doctor because he's got erectile dysfunction. And the doctor writes him a Viagra prescription. And the guy walks out the door saying, okay, thanks, you, you just solved my problem. And if this is a good doctor, in about one minute, he's gonna suddenly realize his mistake. He's gonna drop his pen. He's gonna race out the door and try to catch that patient before he goes down the elevator and bring him back in and say, I forgot to tell you something. This is really important. Your erectile dysfunction is not caused by performance anxiety or drinking or whatever. You have atherosclerosis. Most men who have erectile dysfunction have artery narrowings. What what, what atherosclerosis is, is your your cholesterol level has been high or your blood pressure, your smoking, all these things add together to cause little bumps to form like blisters inside your arteries. And they're in the arteries to the heart and the arteries to the brain and also in the arteries to a man's private parts and they slow down blood flow. And a man's private parts are, it's kind of a hydraulic system um, where if he doesn't have good blood flow, nothing works. 
Um, so that's the reason he's impotent. Um, and the reason he doesn't have good blood flow is he's got atherosclerotic disease. And so what the doctor freaked out about is he realizes that erectile dysfunction is the first sign of systemic atherosclerosis. So the, the, the doctor explains to the patient, you are at high risk for a heart attack or a stroke mm. within the next three, four, five years. So take your Viagra if you want to, but before you leave the clinic today, you need to see our dietitian. And we, I want to map out a menu that's going to get your cholesterol down and see if we can reverse this disease. And there's one diet that reverses this disease. And that's a diet that does not have animal products in it Absolutely. and also keeps it really low. So, so there you go. He, you know, the guy goes in there thinking he needs a testosterone shot mm -hmm. or he thinks he's under too much stress. He may be under stress, but that's not why he's impotent. You know, when he was 15, he was under stress, but he wasn't impotent at that age. What I love is that you're like the third doctor that has said the same exact thing. Dr. Aaron Spitz, a urologist, Dr. Now you, Neil Barnard, and Dr. Joel Kahn, cardiologist. Yep. And they all said the same thing. So that's three for three people. Whoever's yep. listening, all our listeners are watching, this is the reason why. So let's get into that. I really want to get into that whole infertility thing because I do have a couple questions on that. I do not have children. I don't plan on having children. However, I do know that there's a couple of my friends who have had issues with infertility and they're going through the in vitro or anything like that. But as a woman, if you are trying to get pregnant, how does that affect you? Uh, a woman needs a certain amount of estrogen. Um, estrogen is the female sex hormone. You need a certain amount, but if you have too little, it's a problem. If you have too much, it's a problem. Um, you need to be in the sweet spot. And there are several things that knock you out of that. Um, one is if a woman has is carrying just too much body fat. Now, I know we all, uh, everyone has their own feeling about that. And, and if some people want to lose weight, um, uh, they often struggle with that. Um, and they try all different, different means of losing weight. But the, the issue for fertility is that body fat is actually a factory. Um, you think of fat cells as just being kind of a bag of calories, but it's not. Fat cells create uh, estrogens. They produce estrogens, and your, your level can be too high. So over the short run, that can it, it, uh, interfere with fertility issues. Over the long run, it can increase the risk of breast cancer. So reducing body weight is a good way, is, a, is helpful. Um, and actually, the best body weight for fertility, where, where you're maximally fertile, is sort of on the thin side of normal. Not too thin, but definitely not not overweight. Um, if you checked your BMI, your body mass index online, in fact, you can do this. Just put in BMI calculator, body mass index calculator. Put in your height and your weight. Um, the most fertile, the, the the you see the most fertility at a BMI of around 19 or 20 or 21. That's that's normal, but kind of on the skinny side of normal. Um, second thing, um, dairy products again, but it's it's something else. Uh, a lot of women, well, all women, will find that their fertility declines a bit as they reach 30, 35, 40, 45. Um, and, you know, if you're 22 years old and you think, well, I, I'm fertile now, but I'm also busy now <laughs> with my career. I'm doing some things. Maybe this is not the time for me to be a mom. Maybe I'll wait, you know. But then once you're 35, your, your own mother will say, Hey, your biological clock is ticking. You know, don't don't keep waiting. You know, it's going to get harder and harder the older you are. That's true. Um, researchers have found that dairy products might be a, a big part of this. Uh, the dairy sugar, the lactose. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. The dairy sugar is called lactose. You hear you have people who are lactose intolerant. In your body, if you're digesting lactose, it breaks down to a smaller sugar 
called galactose, G-A-L-A-C-T-O-S-E, galactose. Galactose and glucose come out of the lactose. The galactose appears to be toxic to the ovary. So when, when a woman is consuming lactose sugar, you know, you, you get away with it when you're 14, 15, 18, 22. But by the time you're 30, 32, you start to see fertility dropping off. And in countries, here's the, um, the amazing thing. If you look at countries where people don't consume dairy products, their fertility tends to remain high or much higher during that period. In Thailand, for example. Like Japan, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Yeah, Although, unfortunately, Japan is now westernizing. Um, mm -hmm. Their diet is now, I mean, it never used to have milk in it, but now it, it has more. Um, Thailand, kind of the same story. But, it, but in Thailand, there's much less dairy consumption. And there, the drop in fertility between the late 20s and the late 30s, maybe about 25%. In the United States, it's about 80% drop. Um, so the, what we think is it's the sugar. And people think, how much sugar is there in milk? Sugar is the number one nutrient in cow's milk. If, yeah. if, if there's more sugar than there is calcium, than there is protein, than there is fat, than there is anything, um, this lactose sugar, is, it was designed by nature to give a lot of calories to a calf. Um, but you're an 18 or 25 or 38 year old woman. Why are you drinking the milk out of a cow? And the only reason people accept it is just culturally, we all grew up with it. But if you think about it, it's, it's a kind of a kooky thing and it's associated with all kinds of problems. There's no reason for it. And people fight us on us eating soy and they think, <laughs> oh, it's full of estrogen. And I'm like, no, it's phytoestrogen. It has nothing to do with bovine or human estrogen. And again, from I come, my background is Peruvian Chinese. My people have been eating soy for thousands of years. And I'm like, guys, do you see me that I'm dying? Do you see my breasts that are, I'm a double D and I've been eating soy ever since I can chew? No. So they have that, this, I agree with you, the culture part, but there's also so much lack of education and even right. a lack of wanting to educate yourself on it. I was like, look it up. It says right there. Um Let's let's talk about that a little bit because you, you know guys guys are nervous about it. They they read some they read somewhere online that um, here's here's the the mythology. Uh, soy has estrogens and that'll give me man boobs. That that's that's <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, but here's what you do: go to the beach on an August afternoon, and you'll see a kind of heavy guy who have what looks kind of like man boobs. Go up to him and ask him how much tofu did you eat this past week. Um, and he's going to say, what? And you say, well, edamame, uh, miso. And he'll say, I don't eat any of that stuff. What are you talking about? He's eating burgers um, and he's eating pizza and he's eating grilled cheese sandwiches. And what's happened to him is that he's gained weight and his body fat is creating estrogens. It's taking his testosterone and converting it into estrogens. And that's what's causing his man boobs. It has nothing to do with soy at all. And then the other thing is pe people think, well, this soy estrogens will um, give a woman breast cancer. And it's just the opposite, that we have plenty of research now and women who consume the most soy, um, soy milk or, or edamame or tofu, the women who consume the most soy have about 29% risk of developing breast cancer compared to other women. Yeah, exactly. And, and also um, women who have been diagnosed with cancer in the past. Um, if they've been diagnosed with cancer and if they avoid soy, they do the worst. The, the, the women who avoid soy are the women who are most likely to die of their cancer. The women who consume the most soy are the most likely to survive. Now, soy is optional. You don't have to have it, but it does not cause man boobs. It does not interfere with 
fertility, as you can tell from looking at China and Japan. Um, and it does not cause cancer. It's a preventer. And just to come back to the science very quickly, your um, soy isoflavones are these so-called phytoestrogens. They're, they're really called isoflavones. Mm -hmm. And in, in your car, you've got a gas pedal. You step on the gas, your car goes. Um, you step on the brake, your car stops. Soy is the brake on the cancer cell. It stops it. Um, it's um, it, it keeps estrogen activity in line. So anyway, th thank you for letting me spread the word on that. It, it blocks the receptor, from what I understood from the reading um, I was doing. Right. You you have you um you you, you actually have two different uh, estrogen receptors: alpha receptors, beta receptors, and the soy isoflavones attached to the beta receptor. So it's a good thing. That's a good thing that we got into that particular topic because your book also discusses uh, cancer and hormones, especially with sex-related um, cancers like breast cancer, cervical cancer, um, testicular cancer. Yeah. Yes. So let's get a, a little bit into that because I really want to know. Um, one of my coworkers, she told me that she cannot have soy because when they did her markers on her blood work, she said her cancer was soy-derived. You know, it's it's really an amazing thing to just um, know. Uh, soy products do not cause cancer, um, and they, they have the opposite effect. Um, but but it's it's back to what you were describing: is that people imagine that soy has estrogens in it that will drive cancer. Um, and one of the things that we've been really working hard to do is to make sure that doctors are studying nutrition. They tend not to learn about it in medical school, and they don't learn it in in continuing education later. Um, we actually have a, a bill pending in our city council here in Washington that would require doctors to learn about nutrition because some of them will say to a woman who's at risk for cancer, um, gee, uh, I wouldn't have soy if I were you. And it's, it's, it's really harming them. Now, you don't have to have soy, but it's good in two ways. One is it does reduce cancer risk. Secondly, it replaces things that would increase cancer risk. If you have a hamburger, and or a cheeseburger or something like that that's the kind of food that increases cancer risk if you replace it with a veggie burger that includes soy products it's going to reduce cancer risk so now is now does it matter what type of soy because i've heard that um and this could be misinformation that uh, soy that comes from gmo based or you know modified ingredients within the soy do have harmful effects on the body versus ones that are organic. Am I off base on? Um, that's a, that's a great question, Sean. I got to tell you, um, I don't think the I don't think the jury is in on that yet. But while but while people are are sorting this out, I suggest that you choose organic soy. Um, and if you go to the store and you buy a carton of soy milk or tofu, just look for the ones that are marked organic. They're easy to find. Um, in some cases, that's all they they sell. Um, and if it's organic, then by law, it cannot be GMO. But there's one other issue on this. And sometimes people wonder if uh, it should be fermented soy, mm. uh, like a miso or tempeh. That's a fermented product, unlike, say, tofu or soy milk, which are not fermented. And the answer is it doesn't seem to matter. Um, they both seem to work. So um, there you have it. Okay. So we touched, we talked a little bit about fertility and how hormones play a role in that. And we talked about um, both men and women, but what other things might be out there, especially for men that- Okay. Um, uh, we should really talk about uh, prostate cancer briefly okay. uh, because it's one of the most common cancers in men and the older men get, the higher their risk of it. Uh, if you look at different countries, um, it comes back to dairy, we think. 
that the countries that have the most milk consumption have the most prostate cancer. So at Harvard University, they did a, a study called the, health, um, the Physician's Health Study. They brought in a large group of men, more than 20,000 men. They were all doctors. And it turned out that the, those who consumed the most milk products had the most prostate cancer, about 35% higher risk. And um, the question was, could that just be a coincidence? Um, yeah, it's in the dairy and countries. It's also more in the dairy consuming men. Is it really true? So what we think is happening is that when a man or a woman drinks milk, that it causes your body to produce something called IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor one, which in the test tube causes cancer cells to grow like crazy. Uh, prostate cancer, but also breast cancer cells. Um, so we're now thinking this makes sense because what's milk's job? Its job is to help a calf grow. Um, but if you're a fully grown human being, extra growth in your body could mean the growth of cancer cells. Okay. Wow. And then prostate cancer, um, well, prostate, when should, uh, when should we be checking that? I know there's like a, a certain age recommendation where you should be having it as a part of your routine, physical, annual physical. Around what age is that? Something that really, I think, it's sort of between a patient and a doctor based on family history and things like that. But it's not uncommon for it to begin in the mid-40s or something. Um, it's, it, the, the cancer is really quite rare at that age. Um, it, once a, a guy is maybe in his mid-60s, it becomes more common. But mm -hmm. many, many doctors will start testing men uh, when they're 40. Um, how, however, um, it's quite controversial. What they'll do is they'll, they'll do a physical exam, um, which makes the men squirm a little bit. Um, but they will also do a blood test called PSA or prostate-specific antigen. The, the problem is, or, or, the, or the reason for controversy, is that you see a lot of guys who look like they might have cancer when they actually don't. Um, so some doctors say, don't test men so early. Um, it's, it's a controversial thing. I leave that between uh, men and their doctors. But what is not controversial, in my view, is that we ought to be doing what we can to prevent cancer. So starting early in life, we should be on a healthy, completely plant-based diet. There is no requirement for any milk for you at any time other than the milk that came out of your own mama's breast. Um, and that's what you should be having. And, and by the way, let me say a word for this. At, at the risk of sounding sexist, I really think that breastfeeding is important. Um, I don't think, see it as optional. And many women will say, well, it's uncomfortable and my job gives me a really hard time and I haven't had any education with it and I understand. And I think that, frankly, jobs, employers ought to be understanding about this. They ought to allow women some privacy and, and some scheduling flexibility so that they can do this um, and so that the baby can be nourished um, physically and also psychologically with mom. Um, a woman can also pump her breasts if she wants to do it that way. Um, but formula, once in a while, you have to have formula if, if, if for whatever reason the woman medically can't breastfeed. But I would do everything we can to make life easy so that mom can yeah. be there with her baby, um, can nourish the baby for, for the first year, 18 months, two years of life. Uh, breast milk is a good thing. After that, you don't need you don't need any kind of milk. Now, I do have a question. Do women have prostates? No, luckily. <laughs> um, no, no. Um, I'm obviously, a transgender woman would. Oh. Yeah. That, oh, okay. That's, that's yeah, another. It's, it's, it's not removed. So it's still there. Very interesting. Oh, wow. That's definitely going to be another topic, another poly podcast, huh? Yeah. All right. So let's get into menopause. Menopause, a woman's time where she is 
stop the menstrual cycle, when she her body's also going through changes, how does that affect the hormones uh, running around in us as well? Yeah, it's a big change. Um, the ovaries uh, have declared that the factory's closed. We're not making a baby anymore. Um, and so the amount of estrogen in her blood falls um, quite dramatically. And so she'll get um, symptoms as a result of that, hot flashes, uh, vaginal dryness, and um, for a, over a temporary period, she might find that she'll be moody. Uh, she might find uh, that her memory is playing tricks on her for a little while. Um, she'll feel sort of uh, a, a number of hormonal changes, uh, some of which are temporary. Um, but all these things can happen and they can be sort of disturbing. And we're still sorting out what, what this is all about and the best approach to it. But, but we got a clue going back to Japan. Um, if you looked at Japan back in the 1960s, there really women very rarely reported hot flashes at all. Mm. Um, and at first, researchers thought, well, you're just being kind of reticent. You don't want to talk about something private like that. Um, but uh, researchers looked in great detail and said, tell us, what, what physical symptoms are you having? And women really didn't report, oh, you know, I'm breaking out into a sweat. I got to fan myself. What they would say is, well, my back hurts a little bit. Um, but the symptoms were very mild. And there was, in fact, no Japanese word for hot flashes. So what was the diet like? Dairy products were consumed bit, almost not at all in Japan at that time. Uh, the diet was very much built on rice. And although there was some meat, uh, some fish, it was really mostly as a flavoring for the rice. So you have a whole lot of rice and little dribbly drabblies of, of meat or, or some fish to kind of flavor it up and abundant use of vegetables. And then all of a sudden, the 1980s, McDonald's, well, the, the Western culture arrives and suddenly you have a non-dairying country that's starting to drink milk. In fact, kids in school were told to drink milk so that you can be like the Americans. Uh, and meat came in and rice started coming down and women started to report hot flashes. Mm. Breast cancer rates doubled in, in those women who westernized, not in those who didn't. Uh, diabetes came in, cardiovascular disease came in, all these problems. And so what we think is that, that the diet caused home hormone haywire. Do you think that it would be easier if you're on a whole food plant-based diet that even though you are older, an older woman in your late 40s, early 50s, and you're going through this change that your period is stopping, you shouldn't be having these hot flashes, all these symptoms. You can still continue with your life. Um, we, 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 the, the, the theory is that if a woman follows a healthy, low-fat plant-based diet going into menopause, that it'll be an easier experience for, for her. That said, I have found that it's quite variable. Um, and you could be following a vegan diet and still have hot flashes. I don't know if that means that the, the oil content might be a contributor to it. Um, that if you're on a fattier, let's say you've been eating vegan, but it's a lot of French fries and greasy stuff, that will elevate your estrogen level going in before menopause. And then when it stops, it stops. Um, and the, the symptoms might be worse. Um, but back to soy just really quickly. Um, some women have been using soy as uh, a treatment for hot flashes. And it doesn't seem to help everybody, but it does seem to help, oh, maybe 40%, something like that. Oh, wow. um, and you can try, some women will, will use just soy foods like edamame um, or tofu, but others will go to the store and they say, for me to make it work, I've got to have soy protein, where they get one of these little tubs of, of soy protein, they put it in a smoothie, and they have that every morning. And they find that after a week or so, their hot flashes just go. So um, if somebody listening to this program has that, give it a try and see what happens. Another, another major health issue that's impacting a lot of people, and you discuss it in your book, is diabetes. 
Now, how how does this play and what discussion that we've been having so far? How does that play a role in diabetes and possibly reversing it, if that's even a thing? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, th thank you for asking that. So we've been talking about hormones. We've been talking about estrogens and testosterone. And those are the hormones that go from the ovaries or the testes or uh, to some extent elsewhere in the body. They go in and control all the aspects of our reproduction. And the thyroid hormone comes out of the thyroid and uh, changes our energy level. But in diabetes, it's insulin. And insulin is this hormone that comes out of the pancreas, which is an organ behind your belly button. And the pancreas makes the insulin and it goes to the muscle cells. And its job, insulin is like a key that opens up each muscle cell to let sugar into the cell. And it also goes to your liver to let sugar into the liver. You think, well, why would, why would it want to do that? Sugar is fuel. Your car runs on gasoline, your muscles run on sugar. You know, a person who's gonna run a marathon, they're carbo-loading beforehand. They're, they're eating bread and potatoes and pasta and sugary stuff to build up uh, the sugar, the, the scientific term is glycogen, but it's inside their muscles um, to give them power. The, and in diabetes, your insulin isn't working anymore, or it's not working very well. And if the insulin isn't working, then the sugar can't get into the muscle cells and you lose your energy. You feel like completely tired. And then the sugar is building up outside the muscle. It's building up in the bloodstream. So the doctor diagnoses you've got a high blood sugar. But it's the reason for this is surprising to people. In fact, let me lay, lay this out. Can I tell you about the cause of type 2 diabetes? Please. Um, and if anybody's kind of halfway listening to, the, to this program, I want you to pay full attention right now because what I'm going to tell you is the most important thing I have to say. Diabetes is caused by eating fatty foods, meat, cheese, greasy junk. The fat molecules get into your muscle cells, and when fat builds up inside the muscle cells, insulin can no longer work. Insulin is like a key trying to open that muscle cell up to let the glucose inside. But if the cell, if your muscle cell is loaded with fat, the glucose can't get from the blood into that cell anymore. And that's why you got diabetes. So the patient who's got diabetes, they, they discover that if they eat an apple or they have some bread, that the sugar from those foods builds up in their blood. And so they think that the apple caused their diabetes or they think the bread caused the diabetes. Uh-uh, that's the late part of it. That it began with fat building up inside your cells so that insulin can't work anymore. And now anything you eat, the, the sugar can no longer get inside your cells. So in 2003, now what, 17 years ago, the US government funded our research team to test a better diet for type two diabetes. And if I wanna get the fat out of your cells, what do I do? I throw out all the animal products because if there's no animal products in your diet, there is zero animal fat. And if we keep the oils low, you know, so you're not eating a lot of greasy potato chips and stuff, keep the oils low, then there's not much of any kind of fat. And you know what happens? That muscle cell that's filled with oil, filled with grease, filled with beef fat, whatever it is, that fat starts to dissipate. Mm. It starts to get out of the cell. And then when that happens, then your insulin can work again. And then the glucose can get out of the blood into the cell and your diabetes can improve. And in some cases, it just simply goes away. Oh, wow. And that's just from switching your diet, getting off of the fats, getting off of the meats and allowing your body to do, get, essentially getting out of your body's way. Yeah. Oh, your, your body has a capacity to heal. But you know what? 
if you cut your skin, the Band-Aid doesn't heal you. Mm. You know, the Band-Aid just protects you. The skin has in its DNA the ability for, for torn apart skin cells to rejoin. You know, that's, and there may be a scar, but the healing is a natural process. And your, your cells want to heal too. Um, so the idea is let's get the animal products out and let's keep the oils really low too. So I want you to stop your guacamole fest right now. I think we're gonna get the, the fats out of Yeah, I'm sorry to break your heart. Um, for you, if you're skinny and you don't have diabetes, it's okay for you. But if somebody's got diabetes and they're trying to reverse it, they've got to, they've got to avoid those foods. We're gonna drain the fat out of your cells and I'm gonna make your diabetes go away if I can. Nice. And uh, I think you just killed a bunch of avocado <laughs> Right now, <laughs> avocados are, are they're, they're wonderful, but they're one of the very, very few plant-based foods that's got a lot of fat in it. And 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 you can have the occasional avocado if you're already thin, you're and you're healthy. You know that's fine. What's what you know? What could be wrong? But if if you're having trouble losing weight, you got to get away from all those really fatty foods. And that means the the meat, including the fish. Th throw that out. Get rid of the dairy products. Be careful about the avocados and the nuts too. Your book, speaking about fat, your book continues uh, on talking about metabolism and why some people cannot lose weight. And is that part of that? Um, that is part of it. Um, we do research studies here with thousands of people and um, we, we try to avoid the fattier foods. Um, when people do that, they, their, their weight loss improves. Um, another reason is thyroid. Um, the thyroid gland for a lot of people goofs up. Um, and if you get your thyroid imbalance, oh my God, it, it'll, it'll change your life. Most people don't think about this at all. Um, what they think about is, I don't feel good. I say, I feel tired. I can't get out of bed. I'm just kind of dragging. I'm sort of depressed and my hair doesn't seem right. You know, uh, my skin, you know, these are all vague symptoms. But a doctor will say, wait a minute, I'll bet it's your thyroid. Your thyroid controls your energy. Um, and your thyroid is this tiny little gland at the base of your neck and it cannot, yet that's it. And it cannot make thyroid hormone um, properly if you're not in balance. And there's two steps you need to to, to get back in balance. I can tell you what they are. Please yeah. go. Yes, please. Yes. Um, number one, <laughs> number one, and this is a little bit different. Um, let's say, um, okay, you're, you're, you've been following your healthy plant-based diet and everything's going great. But then you start to develop these symptoms. Um, and your doctor does uh, uh, starts asking you, uh, do you use salt? And you say, oh, no, 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 salt's bad for me. I stopped using it. What kind of salt did you used to, to use? Well, I used to use that can of salt that has the, it's blue. It's got the little girl on it with the umbrella. And, oh, Morton iodized salt. Right. Well, I don't use that anymore. Um, and if I ever use salt, I use Himalayan salt. What the doctor's getting at is your thyroid needs iodine. And the only source of iodine you had in your diet was that little bit of iodized salt. Now you're not using it anymore. So your thyroid gland isn't making iodine anymore. What do you do? Well, you can use iodized salt again if you want. Or you go to the, to the store and you buy some, any kind of seaweed. Uh, go to a sushi bar and don't get fish sushi. Get a cucumber roll or um, a sweet potato roll or an asparagus roll. The nori wrap around the sushi roll is loaded with iodine mm -hmm. um, or, or the wakame that's in your miso soup. That's all sea vegetables have a lot of iodine in them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I grew up in North Dakota. We didn't know what a sea vegetable was. Well, if you bring it back into your life, um, that's a healthy source of iodine. You can take, you can take pills, you can take iodized salt, but that's thing one is you got to have a certain amount of iodine um, in your routine. Thing two, 
Um, if you needed a reason to be vegan, um, and I know <laughs> there's every reason to do it, um, your thyroid is a great reason for that. Um, many people are hypothyroid mm -hmm. because something in their body is creating antibodies that are attacking their own thyroid gland. Um, and that something could be food. It could um, be an autoimmune disease. That's what you're saying. I'm sorry? Hypothyroidism is an autoimmune disease. Correct. Exactly. Well, yes, hypothyroidism means your thyroid is not producing enough hormone. And it's, uh, in the most cases in the U.S., are caused by an autoimmune disease where antibodies are being formed in your body. Antibodies are proteins that normally knock out viruses. But now it's knocking out your thyroid cells. It's, it's, it's putting a break on your thyroid. Um, and in some cases, it can actually cause hyperthyroidism because the antibodies are attacking the thyroid regulation machinery so that your thyroid is in overdrive and it can't, it can't respond to your balance in a normal way. So uh, researchers at the Adventist Health Study started looking at people who were non-smokers, health-conscious, teetotalers, but some were vegan, some were lacto-ovo vegetarians. So they're, 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 they weren't eating meat, but they were eating cheese and dairy, sometimes a lot. And then they would look at omnivores. And the vegans had the lowest risk of hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. The ovo-lacto people, the cheese folks, had the highest risk of hypothyroidism, even more than the meat eaters. And the meat eaters had the highest risk of hyperthyroidism. What we think is happening, what we're, what we're hypothesizing is that the proteins in, the, in these foods trigger the autoimmune reaction. And what about shifting gears just a little bit? What about our mood? Like uh, the imbalances in our mood, depression, all the things that come with that, how the, our hormones and our diet play a role in that? Yeah, I got to tell you, this is something we discovered by accident. Um, in fact, all of this is kind of an accident. When we first find out what's happening, um, we did a research study with Geico, the, the car insurance company. Um, Geico's headquarters is about four blocks that way um, from my office. And so years ago, we did a research study with them, and then it worked really well. So we did another study with Geico in 10 different cities all across the United States. And what we were trying to do was to see how a healthy diet would improve body weight and improve diabetes. But in the course of this study, we did some paper and pencil tests that would rate people's psychological adjustment. And what we found is that when people would go on a healthy plant-based diet, their mood would improve, uh, specifically. Anxiety would diminish and depression would diminish. And we thought, why is that? <laughs> and um, I should say the other teams found the thing. Thought, well, you're losing weight, you get coming off your medications, that, is, that could be part of it. And I think it's true. But there are two other explanations. The first is that what you eat affects your gut. You know, you've got, you have a gut microbiome, you've got bacteria in your gut. And you can have mischievous, maladjusted bacteria in your gut that make chemicals that feed back to the brain and make you feel rotten. Um, or you can have healthy bacteria that make healthy chemicals that feed back to the brain and make you feel good. And when people are on a high fiber, plant-based diet, it fosters the growth of healthy bacteria. If you are on a low fiber, meaty diet, meat, meat does not have fiber in it, dairy does not have fiber, um, the, the healthy bacteria are, are restrained and you, you, don't, you don't see their growth so much. So we think that's it. The, the other thing is um, inflammation. Uh, inflammation in the body anywhere affects the brain as well. 
and uh, a, a vegan diet is anti-inflammatory. We, we think that those are probably the reasons why the mood improves. So we need more research, but, but I, I, I would love to see a good randomized trial of people with major depressive disorder and get people eating a vegan diet, get them out in the sunshine, get them exercising and lacing up their sneakers. I would bet that that combination done as a group with a little bit of group support, I'll bet you that it would probably be as effective against depression as, as medications and that all the side effects are good ones. Hmm. Yeah. So we went over a lot of different areas on why a plant-based diet is beneficial. Your book um, goes more into depth, which they can definitely purchase. And if you're in a South Florida area, we'll talk about it a little bit later, they can come actually see you in person and give a presentation in two different locations, which is super right. exciting. So we're hearing all this information and we're ready. What can a person do to start their journey, their plant-based journey? Okay. All right. Great. Uh, my favorite question. Um, we see this all the time because people, they want to change their diet, but to be vegan sounds hard. They'll think, you know, I don't even like folk music. Do I, how am I going to be vegan? <laughs> Do I have to wear tie dyed clothes now, now that I'm vegan? Do I, um, I'm kidding. Um, the, we break it into two steps. Step one is, uh, if you've never done this before, take a week and take out a piece of paper and on your paper, write breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, leave some room under each heading. And during the next seven days, just fill in things that you think you could eat, uh, that you would like to eat, that have no animal products in them at all. And during these seven days, I want you to try them. Okay, so for breakfast, let's see. I, every day I have cornflakes with, with cow's milk. What could I have instead? And so um, almond milk, maybe, I don't know, is that any good? Or rice milk or soy milk or oat milk, go to the store and just pick one up or pick them all up or whatever and, and just try them. Um, for lunch, every day I go to Subway and I get a chicken sandwich. Um, they've got a veggie sandwich there. I wonder if it's any good. Try it. you got seven days. Every night I go to uh, the taco place and I have a meat taco loaded with cheese. they got a bean burrito, but I never tried it. Um, okay, go there and try it. Uh, leave the cheese off so it's vegan. And you can have all the jalapenos you want. That, that's got vitamin J, right? So just kidding. Um, so you, you, you got you got seven days. You got to try out foods to see which ones work for you. Okay. Now, at the end of seven days, you got lots of breakfasts and lunches and dinners. You're set. So now, step, that's the first step. The st second step is to take three weeks. And during this three-week period, you're going to actually go vegan. No animal products for you for the next three weeks. Good. That's easy because it's only three weeks and because you already picked out the foods that you'd like. So you stock up, it's simple. Okay, what happens? At the end of those three weeks, size up how you feel. And what's happened in most cases is people have lost weight. They're feeling better, their energy is better, their mood is better, their digestion is better. But the other thing is the way you feel about food has dramatically changed. You've found foods that you like, the foods you thought you couldn't live without, you kind of don't care so much anymore. Um, and then you just keep on going. Um, and you don't have to wait. If a person has diabetes, it improves fast. If you're trying to lose weight, the weight loss starts right away. Now take it slow. You don't have to lose 50 pounds in the first month. You know, let it go gradually, but you, you will not have to wait. If a woman's got pain, menstrual pain, yeah. if you do this right, and by, by right, I mean no animal products and keep the oily foods low, you're gonna feel better in all likelihood the very first cycle after that. So give it a shot and see how you do. 
one of the things that like there's societal pressures that come with going vegan. Yeah. You know, um, my experience and experience of others that have spoken to me is once you go vegan, all of a sudden, everybody in your life is an expert, a nutrition expert. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so, where do you, so where do you go for to like rebut that information, the misinformation that's being thrown at you when it comes to the diet, the lifestyle you've decided to adopt? You know, what are some good sources to like immediately get that information to say, okay, I'm not going to die from a protein deficiency or what have you. Right. Um, yeah, what you said is really true is that some people still do wonder, you know, where do you get your protein and so on. Um, and in fact, we should just say a word about getting complete nutrition just so that people know. It's really simple. Eat four food groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and the bean group, beans, peas, lentils, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and I just call them legumes. Eat those four groups. Um, but do take vitamin B12. You need B12 for healthy nerves and healthy blood. And it's a cheap supplement. Whatever the smallest, cheapest one they sell at the store, get that one. They all have more than the, the RDA, which is 2.4 micrograms. They're all bigger than that. Um, but you, you, you can have good, complete nutrition. Um, but uh, you're right. People will say where to you get your protein, all these kinds of things. Um, you do have to be patient. Um, what you do discover, though, is that more people now are saying, I'll bet you're healthy or that's really cool, or they'll say, my sister is vegan, or my yeah. father's vegan, um, or um, this athlete, you know, Lewis Hamilton, or Novak Djokovic is vegan, or, or is, aren't the Tennessee Titans doing that? Or, you know, I mean, it's, it's this big, cool thing now. So um, people are more positive than, than worried, um, but people do need information. So um, we have a, an app on your smartphone, it's called the 21 Day Vegan Challenge, uh, 21 Vegan Kickstart, 21 Day Vegan Kickstart. So the 21 Day Vegan Kickstart is available in Spanish. It's available in, in English, on your Android, on your iPhone. It is free. Um, it's got menus, recipes, videos, really quick, simple things that show you how to cook um, and, how to, and how to eat out at restaurants too. Um, and I hope people will pick up your body and balance. Um, and keep in mind, it's not about everything. It's not about Alzheimer's disease and so forth. It's about hormones. And for anybody who's got all of any of the issues we've, we've talked about, Give it a shot. And, and, and one last thing, let me brag. Um, Lindsay Nixon did the recipes. L Lindsay S. Nixon, who she's the happy herbivore. Um, and she, she 65 recipes here in this book. And when she sent them to me, she sent me a note that I also put in the book. And it said, Dr. Barnard, I hope you like the recipes. Few ingredients, simple to make. Yeah, which is all true. They're great. But she sent me a note that said, eating this way cured my cramps. And so I thought, okay, there, there's validation for you. So anyway, give it a shot. And um, so let's close off on this note. Is there anything that you feel our audience should know that we didn't go over today in our conversation? Um, yes. Uh, I think the most important thing is that, um, although I'm grateful to people for watching this, the people who need this information the most aren't watching this. They haven't even heard of it um, because they're 12 years old and they're in school. And so they're um, eating chicken nuggets. And when they go home, they stop at a 7-Eleven and get candy and string cheese. And then when they're when, at dinner time, their parents put a frozen pepperoni pizza um, in the microwave for them. 
And that's what they're eating day after day after day. And they start getting symptoms. So now the, the 14, 16 year old girl starts getting pain or they get acne um, or they're starting to gain weight and they're thinking, gee, maybe I'm not exercising enough. Maybe I should try a keto diet. All this nonsense comes in. And what happens is they become miserable. Um, and then they're 30 years old and they're dealing with fertility issues and they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on treatments. And then somebody gets diabetes and they're told it's in their, it's in their genes. Um, what I'm coming to is that we, those of us who know about this need to make noise and whatever your uh, social network is, I'm talking about social media. Let's just make noise. Let's spread the word about things. If you want to suggest a recipe or, or a fact that you've heard or, or resources that will help other people's lives, let's really just have fun with this. Make as much noise as we can. If we do that, we're going to change this world. On a note of what you just said, and I'm using my boyfriend as an example, he grew up on the standard American diet on top of the um, a mixture of Puerto Rican and Cuban and with now not even one fresh or raw meal at all. And when he met me, vegan for over a decade, and he was like, what? Cholesterol was over 250 at 27 years old. Oh. It took, yeah, it took him three years for him to come what I consider the green light. Um, but he did have he did have a very, very hard time on that because he was very irritable. He got angry very quickly. And now that he's eating more whole food plant-based, um, it, completely 180 of the person that he used to be back in the day. And I mean, he never had pimples, but he sometimes would get a little bit here or over there. He sometimes will look very tired and haggard, especially working in the hospital that we do. Um, and we're not going to get into what the meals that are provided in the hospital at the moment, because okay. we know that they're horrible, but that was his experience as well. When he started eating something more whole food plant-based um, character change, I'm guessing possibly his hormones levels uh, got better with his male hormones. They kind of stabilized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's to see what, what can happen. And mm -hmm. I don't encourage people to just take this on faith. This is not a cult. This is not a religion. It's biology and it's using foods to get your body back in balance and people can try it themselves mm -hmm. and just put it to the test. Um, there's no risk to it. All this and all the side effects are good ones. Um, and this is why you see uh, uh, football players and so we're doing because they, they yeah. want to be big, but they want to have muscle. They don't want to have flab. Um, so, you know, if you're eating in a healthy way, that's where you can go. And uh, yeah, we want to thank you so much. And of course, you can check all of the show notes. You can get links to our previous episode of Dr. Barnard and um, SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And where can people find more information about um, all the good work that you're doing? Um, our website here at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine is pcrm.org. That stands for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, pcrm.org. I also want to let everyone know that your book, Your Body Imbalance, is now on sale on Amazon or wherever your favorite bookstore is. You want to pick up if you want to learn more about hormones and how they affect us as humans. Thank you. Thank you for spreading the good word. I hope people give it a shot. You'll never know who all you'll inspire, but you'll inspire lots of people. You are listening to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. We want to thank Dr. Neil Barnard once again for joining us on the SoFlo Vegan podcast. It's always a pleasure speaking with him, learning about new things that we we didn't cover in our last podcast. And we hope to have him on in the future. 
What is speaking of the future, we're gonna let you know about what you have in store for the rest of this season. So coming up next week or the next podcast episode, we have Dr. Sam Miami, Dr. Sam Razul, who's going to be joining us. He's a chiropractic specialist. We're talking about neurofunctions, amazing topic of conversation that you want to make sure you tune into. Then we have the badass vegan John Lewis, Karen Calabrese. We have Philip Mangan, the vegan model, Peter Cervoni from Good Catch, Marco Antonio Rahil, Damian Mander, Dr. Bolschlicks, Bolschwick, Dr. B, there you go, <laughs> and a lot of other cool guests lined up. So that's what you have to look forward to. So if you're listening to this and you're subscribed on Spotify, uh, iTunes, Apple, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, any of those platforms, thank you so much. Help us spread the word, share, whatever you can get the word out we really appreciate it your love is our currency and we also want to let you know about another cool event that you can attend to see a lot of the names that i just mentioned as well as guests that you we haven't had on our podcast before we haven't had on our website that's the soulful vegans virtual expo so to get the latest information make sure you go to soulflowvegans.com slash expo and register that way you'll get updates you get the links you get special invites a lot of cool things and the way you do that is by going to soulflowvegans.com slash expo yes so uh, i guess with that being said we want to thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode with dr sam miami you are listening to the so flow vegans podcast